0: This week's episode is brought to you by Studio Sweden. Studio is out to revolutionize the way in which people use headphones by removing the choice between a pair that looks good and a pair that works well. They produce stylish headphones with great sound quality at a fraction of the cost of their competitors while maintaining a sleek and stylish look. I personally use a pair of their Trey headphones for my bus commute and I love them. Whether it's catching up on my own podcasts on the way to work, or using them at the gym to burn off a little steam after class, they're fantastic. Plus, they come with a nifty little leather bag to protect them. Studio is offering listeners of the show 15% off their order with the coupon code History of Japan. That's one word, History of Japan. So head on over to studiosweden.com. That's S-U-D-I-O. S-W-E-D-E-N dot com, and check them out today. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 234, The Oldest Profession. This week, I'm going to talk about something I've been thinking about covering for a long time, but I've been hesitant to do it. A long time ago, when I was younger, more innocent, and knew literally nothing about sound editing I'm surprised anyone still listens to those first episodes, to be honest, I marked this podcast feed as clean on iTunes. This was a distribution decision designed to open things up to a wider potential audience and a business one for me, as a potential future teacher who really did not want my name attached to anything risque that a parent or student might come across. However, that also locks out some pretty interesting topics and ones that I do think are worth discussing. So, for the first time ever, I've decided to remove the clean tag for one episode. So, this is your warning. if you're listening with a kid or you're a kid yourself or you're not super interested in hearing about the kind of things that we get a clean tag removed well this might not be the week for you don't worry i'll be back with something less risque next week and incidentally it is a little strange that i can do a whole episode on the nanjing massacre and that's cool or whatever but i have to worry this much about doing an episode on prostitution but hey it is what it is so yeah This week on the history of Japan after dark, it's time for the history of the world's oldest profession as it relates to Japan specifically. I actually decided not to describe anything in too much graphic detail. The goal here is not to talk about the experience of prostitution, because I want to stress for the benefit of those listeners I happen to be married to, that's something I have no experience with, but rather to talk about the social role of prostitution the position it's had within the fabric of Japanese society throughout history. So with that in mind, how have Japan's ladies of negotiable affection plied their trade in the land of the rising sun? So prostitution has been around in Japan for a long time. While it is, of course, often referred to as the world's oldest profession, that's more of a commentary on human sexuality than a definitively proven fact it's hard to be sure when the first brothel in Japan, or anywhere else for that matter, opened. That said, here's what we do know. By Japan's high medieval period, what we would call the Kamakura and the Muromachi periods, there were groups of professionalized female entertainers in Japan who acted as singers, musicians, poets, and a host of other things. Among their services, for the right price, were, shall we say, acts of a more intimate nature. But the idea that selling sex was a profession, that there was a job called prostitute, which was just the thing you did with your working day, well, maybe it existed, but it was not really a social phenomenon. It's not until the Tokugawa rose to power that prostitution became an established economic fact, one that was acknowledged and regulated by the government, and one with, shall we say, amenities available across the country. Now, there haven't been many good academic studies of prostitution in Japan for a very good reason. Amy Stanley, in her book, which is called Selling Women, Prostitution, Markets, and the Household in Early Modern Japan, lays out a very good reason why, so instead of mangling her words, I'm just going to quote her at length. Quote, Among the issues related to the study of prostitution is a contentious question that has long preoccupied feminist theorists and historians. Can labor in the sex industry be interpreted as an exercise of agency by women making rational economic choices, or is the stigma attached to the profession so overwhelming that the choice to sell sex can never be freely made? The former position, that prostitution is an exercise of agency, assumes that women can choose to work in the sex trade for their own benefit. The latter, that degradation cannot be freely chosen, assumes that the stigma attached to female promiscuity is universal. Neither of these premises applies to Tokugawa Japan." Now, what's she talking about, that neither of these premises applies to Japan? To understand that, we have to understand more about a group not usually centered in discussions of prostitution, prostitutes themselves. Very few women who ended up as ladies of the night during the Edo period chose the profession. The vast majority were indentured as young girls, or at the latest as teenagers. Particularly in the countryside, where bad growing seasons could ruin a family that was not industriously prepared for the contingency, families were occasionally forced to indenture away children to cover bills, and to decrease the number of mouths they had to feed in the process. The fact that these children were helping to pay the debts of their birth parents actually made them a kind of noble figure in the popular culture of the period. They were laboring away to protect their families. This practice was literally called body-selling, miyuri in Japanese, which gives you a pretty clear idea of how much of a say the people being sold had in it. They were treated as objects, not as actors in their own right. On the flip side, Japanese traditional culture didn't really stigmatize sexuality, and especially female sexuality, to the same degree that we find in, say, the Western early modern period. There were taboos, to be sure, particularly related to the sacred. Buddhist monks and nuns should not be tempted sexually, and getting your freak on at a holy site was, shall we say, frowned upon. But the idea that sex was somehow permanently polluting, or that monogamy with a single partner was an ideal to aspire to, wasn't really culturally prevalent. Cohabitation before marriage was not uncommon, particularly outside of the samurai class, as was remarriage for widowed women, both things that would have flown in the face of custom and law in, say, Imperial China. Divorce was actually fairly straightforward again, especially for commoners. And while adultery was considered a punishable offense, it was not bad because of the sex itself. It was punishable because it disturbed the social order of a village. Now, as Confucian moralizing about sexual abstinence began to penetrate into Japanese society, particularly as the samurai upper class became more and more Confucianized, some of this did start to change. But still, the idea that Japanese women should be monogamous no matter what or that sex outside marriage somehow tainted a woman, never really caught on during the Edo period. And that is a remarkable contrast to both Korea and China. In contemporaneous Joseon, Korea, prostitution was restricted to a hereditary class of entertainers called Kisang, who were at the very bottom of the social pyramid. And in China, one of the Qing emperors actually outlawed prostitution on the grounds that all good women should aspire to monogamy. Not that, mind you, outlawing it actually got rid of it. You might remember that I mentioned we have the diaries of Korean diplomats who went to Japan during this time, and let me tell you they were all universally shocked and appalled by all of this, and particularly by the fact that brothels were allowed to be set up on the major roads and operated out of government-subsidized inns. So that's a bit about popular views of sexuality, but what about the prostitutes themselves? The popular image of those women floated between two poles. On the one hand, we have the image I discussed before. It's that of the virtuous, self-sacrificing child who gave up her body for her parents. But there's another, more misogynistic view of prostitutes as selfish and greedy social parasites. Bad influences not because of the sex itself, as we discussed above, but because they took wealth from others without producing anything concrete themselves. Remember, this is the same rationale that was used to put merchants at the bottom of the social pyramid. In particular, women who paid off their original indenture, whose work had paid off the price their parents had sold them for, and who continued to work as prostitutes instead of leaving to find other employment or get married, they were lumped into this second category. And again, this is not because what they were doing was necessarily bad in and of itself, but because they were doing the same thing that merchants in the Confucian worldview do. They just moved wealth around, they didn't make anything themselves. Thus, we see widely varied depictions of prostitutes in art and literature. Sometimes they're honorable women thrust into a difficult path, lamenting their bad fortune, Sometimes they're close to what we'd call sex symbols, glamorous icons of women, some of the very few in the age, not bound to men in any formal or long-term way, and thus free to simply be themselves. Still other times, we get those shrill, money-grubbing harpies. During the Edo period, popular culture fluttered between these views, though at the tail end of Tokugawa rule, when the economy, especially for samurai, really started to falter, the negative view became more and more prevalent. The reality was, of course, substantially more nuanced. Prostitution was, first and foremost, a legal activity regulated by the Tokugawa government. Licensed prostitute quarters existed in major cities. Those quarters were walled off both to keep what went on there separate from polite society, and because the walls meant there were only a few entrances, easy for the government to monitor and tax tax revenue from prostitution was, if not a particularly large contributor to the finances of the Tokugawa state by volume, at least a steady and consistent one. Of course, the most famous of these districts was the Yoshiwara in Edo, a massive quarter reserved for licensed entertainers who serviced the population of the capital. However, such quarters could be found all over Japan. As I mentioned earlier, even inns along the major roadways would have agreements with pimps to provide accommodations. Shogunal restrictions were supposed to limit this to two prostitutes per inn, but, well, these things were not always carefully observed. And there are some stories of those inns being, shall we say, aggressively marketed, including one reported case where a woman literally dragged a prospective customer inside. There were, by the way, also separate quarters of Edo that specialized in male prostitution, which was also regulated, and unlicensed prostitute quarters in Edo and in other cities. Particularly inspired pimps worked out deals with shrines and temples to operate under their auspices, though the deed itself was done outside sacred ground. Pimps could thus avoid regulation, as religious institutions were handled separately from secular ones, and shrines and temples could attract some very devout religious seekers who were definitely coming to the shrine or temple for the religious experience, if you know what I mean. It's a win-win for everyone. Now, by the end of the Edo period, prostitution was an established social phenomenon, but its true heyday was yet to come. The Meiji period saw an urban boom the likes of which Japan had never experienced before. Big cities like Tokyo and Osaka expanded rapidly as a growing industrial economy drained workers, mostly young, male, unattached workers, from the countryside into the cities. And of course, these young, male, unattached workers needed something to spend their money on. As a result, between 1884 and 1916, the number of registered brothels in Japan just about doubled, from 28,000 to 54,000, a rate of growth twice the rate at which the population was growing. Those numbers also don't take into account women who were not formal prostitutes, such as barmaids or geisha, which is a whole other thing. Sheldon Guerin, a scholar of the imperial era, estimates that by the early 20th century, one in every 31 Japanese women was employed in the sex trade, and that they predominantly came from poor, rural families, particularly in the underdeveloped northeast of the country, an area that had always been given second shrift by the Meiji government because the domains that had fought against it for the longest were located there. Indeed, the social stratification associated with prostitution was profound. Though by 1913, 98% of Japanese school-aged girls were attending schools, only 13% of registered prostitutes had any formal schooling, a real indicator of the extent to which this was a profession bound up not only in gender relations, but in class division. Scholar Morisaki Kazue, one of the few Japanese scholars working on this topic, referred to this as Baishu no Okoku, the Kingdom of prostitution. This explosive growth in the industry did not come without some pushback, particularly from Westerners and Western-educated Japanese, who, for the first time, injected Western standards about extramarital sex and prostitution into the discussion. Sheldon Guerin highlights one case from the year 1900, when a 26-year-old licensed prostitute, Nakamura Yae, wrote into a Tokyo newspaper, the Nijuroku Shimbun asking for help in leaving the trade. Strict laws regulating where prostitutes could go outside of the licensed prostitution quarters made it hard for her to leave herself. The newspaper dispatched a lawyer to interview her, and two days later, the president of the paper, said lawyer, and a group of others marched to the headquarters of the Tokyo Metropolitan Police to ask the police to remove Miss Nakamura's name from the list of registered prostitutes. The police refused, on the grounds that Japanese law required the owner of the brothel to countersign any change, at which point the group returned to the brothel, demanding that the owner sign. They were met by thugs hired by the owner, and a small scuffle ensued. That fight came on the heels of another the day earlier, when one naval ensign, Yamamuro Gunpei, and, more importantly, a British major in the Salvation Army, attempted a similar intervention on behalf of another girl. The whole incident was hugely embarrassing to the government, particularly the fact that a Westerner had been involved in a fight over an institution with such bad optics at a time when Japan was finally beginning to be regarded as a modernized nation in its own right. Incidentally, if you're wondering, the police eventually stepped in and escorted Nakamura Yaya out of the licensed quarter, where she was able to fire her cessation-of-trade paperwork and get on with her life. What happened to her afterwards is unclear. Most prostitutes who left the business went into some kind of working-class job. Light industry, specifically textiles, was the most popular. A small number did return to prostitution eventually, for lack of other options. The highball estimate puts that at less than 20% of former prostitutes. Despite this single success, advocates for the abolition of prostitution ran into some fairly stiff opposition fairly quickly. Among the political class of Imperial Japan, there was no will to abolish prostitution as a profession. Now, you might think the rationale behind that would be obvious. The men who ran the country didn't want to shut down the prostitution system because they, shall we say, dabbled themselves. And yeah, there's some truth to that to be sure but there's another side to their reluctance as well. Prostitution was part of the imperial government's careful framework of social control. Remember that during the imperial period there was an attempt to recast the social role of women in Japan, to place them in the role of good wives and wise mothers, ryōsai kenbo in Japanese. This position, of course, required a great deal of moral virtue in the western mode from women, They were expected to be public examples of proper, upright behavior, examples to their children, and adornments to the public stature of their husbands. This was, of course, not compatible with women running around as prostitutes. Thus, a separate class of prostitutes helped slake the thirst of salacious men while protecting the virtue of pure Japanese women. Of course, this too was bound up in the moral ideology of the imperial state. The imperial government revived the old idea that prostitutes were engaged in an act of filial piety, that by being sold off by their parents to brothels, they were doing their part to support their families. This idea was so ingrained in the imperial system of prostitution that the Home Ministry tended to deny prostitutes permits if they listed anything other than family poverty as a reason for entering the profession. Now, despite this government-sanctioned ideology and government protection of the business, organizations opposed to prostitution did start to crop up. The first were, naturally enough, organized by westernized women. The Japanese branch of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the same organization that campaigned for alcohol prohibition in the U.S., also took up the crusade against prostitution. The Salvation Army, another Western organization, also agitated against the institution. There were some homegrown anti-prostitution societies as well, most notably the Purity Society, or Kakuseikai, a male-dominated organization established in 1911. The arguments of all these groups were fairly consistent that prostitution, because of the restrictions placed on prostitutes and because most were indentured at such a young age, was a violation of human rights, which prevented prostitutes from deciding their own destiny. On the flip side, defenders of prostitution argued that the whole system was a breakwater against male sexual deviance. By concentrating male lust in prostitute quarters, so the argument went, the rest of society was protected against it. One particularly strong metaphor referred to prostitutes as a public latrine concentrating the worst of society's filth to protect the rest. Which is, of course, a profoundly misogynistic argument that treats women like the objects of policy and as literal toilets. I'd say it's also a pretty toxic one for men, too, because it suggests that men are incapable of being grown-ups and controlling themselves. Ultimately, the abolitionist side was not successful, or at least not on its own. For a while, things did trend in their direction. In the 1920s, under public pressure from groups of increasingly educated and politically active women, the Home Ministry announced that it would no longer place any restriction on the right of women to leave the trade. All they had to do was express a desire not to be prostitutes anymore. In 1932, a League of Nations report, one of the last ones Japan was a party to, condemned Japan's prostitution system for enabling child trafficking, which resulted in a government announcement that the system was under review. Ultimately, in 1934, the Home Ministry announced its intention to abolish prostitution in the near future. But of course, that phrase is pretty ambiguous, and as it turned out, the government had bigger fish to fry in the near future, like the whole endless 15-year war thing. It was not until after the Second World War that abolition of prostitution came back on the menu. But even then, the process was not immediate. Indeed, the shuttering of wartime institutions and the economic malaise of the late 1940s put a lot of women out of traditional work, and you can imagine what industry they ended up turning to to sustain themselves. And remember, the Japanese government even sponsored prostitution for American GIs to keep them away from honest Japanese women via the Recreation and Amusement Association, whose recruitment posters emphasized free room, board, and clothes as well as a decent wage, a hard offer to beat. Ultimately, though, pressure from ever-stronger women's groups, now bolstered by the American decision to force through women's suffrage, as well as religious pressure groups and Japanese that simply felt prostitution reflected badly on the country, resulted in the passage of an anti-prostitution law in 1956. The law banned any type of sexual act performed in exchange for money, and took two years to come into effect. In 1958, the licensed quarters like the Yoshiwara that had existed since the time of Tokugawa Ieyasu were abolished, But, as we've danced around a few times before, the anti-prostitution law did not bring a total end to the world's oldest profession in Japan, because, of course, outlawing vices in general never serves by itself to get rid of something. Today, while prostitution itself is illegal, there are plenty of ways to skirt that system. In particular, you have the phenomenon of the hostess club, where women are paid to drink with men, to flirt with them, to entertain them, And if they just so happen to sleep with a customer and just so happen to receive a large cash tip in exchange, well, that's not prostitution. That's just friendliness and appreciation shown for said friendliness. There's also the phenomenon of the soap land, essentially a full-body rubdown delivered by a female worker. And you can imagine how that grooming service can very easily slip across the line into full-on prostitution. This is pretty much the loophole used to get around the anti-prostitution law in semi-legal settings, that proving the intent behind a gift of currency is really hard, and the law as written requires the clear intent that something be done as an act of prostitution. Also, not to get too graphic, but the anti-prostitution law as written only covers vaginal intercourse, not the host of other exciting things that are out there, And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Wikipedia has a great series of entries on human sexuality, go have fun. All of those things are 100% legal to sell. In addition to these semi-legal prostitution systems, there are also, of course, fully illegal prostitution systems outside the law altogether managed by the Yakuza. And for a long time, as long as the Yakuza kept things orderly and out of the public eye, the cops were happy to look the other way. Today, the government's anti-organized crime initiatives have come down on this outright prostitution, but Yakuza-driven prostitution does remain a factor in Japan. Indeed, despite being illegal, the sex trade still has such a grip in Japan that Tokyo still has a red-light district. It's called Kabukicho, and the businesses there use the loopholes in the anti-prostitution law to operate fairly openly, In many ways, the biggest thing the anti-prostitution law accomplished was making life harder for women in the trade. Before, they were workers subjected to certain protections, and in the 1950s, the women of the Tokyo Licensed Quarter had actually begun to unionize. But of course, that was no longer possible after the prohibition of prostitution. The ban on prostitution, also in an interesting way, made the activity much more international than it used to be. Human trafficking has become a major issue in modern Japan, as illicit pimps take advantage of A, the willingness of those from poorer nations, like the former Soviet bloc or the nations of Southeast Asia, to move to Japan to try and improve their lives, and B, the rather harsh flaws Japan has in relation to workers who overstay their visas or who work on tourist visas. The system is pretty consistent. First, a woman is invited to come to Japan to do some kind of domestic labor, maid, babysitter, something like that, and then when she arrives, her passport is taken away, and she's forced to work or she'll be turned over to the Japanese immigration authorities for harsh punishment. Japan has actually been cited by both the United Nations and the U.S. State Department as a major destination for human trafficking. Human rights groups estimate that some 200,000 people are trafficked into Japan on an annual basis. Not all of those instances are trafficking are related to sex. The estimates I've seen suggest that there are about 150,000 illegal prostitutes across Japan. So what have we learned from all of this? Well, I think a few really interesting things. First, it's really interesting to see just how the Japanese government historically has been involved in regulating and managing prostitution. For a long time, prostitution was not an ignored social issue, but something the government actually managed very directly. It fit into a larger social schematic that both the Tokugawa and the Meiji governments had for Japan. Second, I think it's interesting how the practice has endured despite more than a century of efforts to eradicate it and now a law against it. In particular, the history of prostitution is a really interesting antidote to ideas about Japanese social conformity. Despite laws against it, despite public pressure against it, the institution endures. Finally, I think this history is really interesting for exploring the agency of women in Japanese society. In the end, that tension Amy Stanley describes between women as active agents asserting their economic independence via prostitution and women as victims of a system remains. However, I do think that in the modern context, because of the anti-prostitution law, the latter case has very much come to dominate. The total lack of protections, the fact that women are punished for coming forward to report abuses, does a lot to trap them in an exploitative system that's outside the law which is not to say that things were perfect or better before the anti-prostitution law, merely that prostitution in Japan, as everywhere else, is deeply complex. I don't have the answers as to whether it should exist or how it should exist, if it should, and frankly, I'm grateful that I don't have to be the one to figure it out. One way or another, though, the world's oldest profession in Japan, as everywhere else, is not going anywhere anytime soon. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Stefan Hrushka, Raymond Dwyer, and the excellently named Mac Justice for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.isaacmeyer.net. That's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R dot net or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we discuss a relatively unknown tale in Japanese history, the ancient story of the warrior Yorozu.